Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Real Chicago Podcast, back after a long hiatus. Today, I interview Lisa Marie Farber, pretty interesting person I've met a few years ago, and I think you'll like this interview. Uh, remember to subscribe and um, like uh, on all the pl- podcast platforms. I really appreciate it, and thank you. Enjoy. Okay, welcome to the Real Chicago Podcast. I'm here with, I'll let you introduce yourself. Go ahead. Hi, my name is Lisa Marie Farber. Um, what do you do for a living? Um, well, my main gig is I, uh, I'm a journalist. I cover the western suburbs of Chicago for a company called Patch. And then in my free time, I do typewriter poetry for money. Oh, nice. Um, I guess one of the first questions I ask everyone, because this is a Chicago podcast, what the hell are you doing in Chicago? (laughs) I ask myself that every day. (laughs) I'm kidding. Um, Well, I moved here in 2009 from Northwest Indiana. I started out uh, there. I was doing, you know, local theater and I had done some theater in college and I wanted to get into Second City. So um, I came here in 2009 started taking some classes at Second City, um, and I went through their conservatory program, their music conservatory program, and their writing program. Um, And once I got here, I never left. (laughs) uh, I actually have a former classmate from Second City that's a writing instructor now. Oh, no way. Yeah, that's right. You've taken some classes there, too, huh? Yeah, but I didn't go to the conservatory I thought that was a bit much and one of the requirements was that you actually had to have had some kind of like acting training if I remember correctly and and I guess you kind of had a, everyone had to know that you would probably be okay at the conservatory whereas I was like yeah I don't think that's for me but I did want to take the writing um, class Maybe I don't know. I'm still thinking about it, especially not because my friend is the instructor, one of you know one of the instru- writing instructors. So I thought that might be something interesting. So, uh, well, do you remember your instructors at Second City? Oh yeah, absolutely. They're they're. I was, I was super blessed to have um, really dynamic and memorable instructors. Actually, the first improv class I think was that I took there was improv for actors. And the teacher I had was Rob Belushi, oh. who is Jim Belushi's yeah. son. I've seen him there. I, I never met him or no, I never like introduced myself to him, but I did see him hanging out there. Yeah. That is so cool. How was that? That was great. It was super fun. And then I actually got to see him. He did a show, I believe, in Skokie. I think it was called Northlight Theater with, um, got the dad from Frasier. Is it? John, oh, Mahone, yeah. John Mahoney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who sadly has passed now, I believe. Yeah, but is. yeah, really great show, really great actor. Everybody in there was great. And um, so that was a great introduction. And then um, I've also had, you know, the great fortune of working with people who had been with some of the original, like, Second City um, people who made it onto SNL. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've had, you know, Michael Gelman, um, Tim O'Malley. You know, some really great instructors. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. It was it was really, really nice. They shared, obviously, great stories. And, 
you know, it was a, a, a really special time in my life to take those classes and, just, you know, everything just super felt, everything about this, I, you know, since I grew up in Indiana where it's kind of rural, we have like, you know, like several acres of land and a pond and like horses. It was so nice to just come to a place where everything was super electric and exciting. I know. The, the, there's times where being in the building at Second City, there's just a certain, there was a certain vibe there that just was electric, you know. Yeah. And that, that was really cool. I do remember that. Um, and I remember my instructors except one. And the only reason I don't remember that person's name was because... Halfway through our course, they went. They had like hernia surgery, so I was like, I don't even remember that person's name. Oh yeah, that's that's too bad. You know, it's it's that's. I don't think I've ever had. I did have one teacher who was pregnant when she was teaching me, but um, she I think you know made it through the whole course. So I've never encountered that. Did they just replace them with like a someone else? Ah, uh, so they had like the subs come in, and. I just feel like it was like total filler classes, you know, sessions, because there's times where I'm like, we're doing an exercise and I'm thinking, this is stupid. Like, I know they're just doing it because they got called in to substitute and I was not getting anything from those exercises. Yeah, I think that that can be kind of tough, especially, you know, with improv, because it really helps to know the you know the type of people that you have in the class what their strengths and weaknesses are you so you can kind of tailor each lesson and then you you also know that you're presenting a lesson that the previous instructor didn't present you know right. the games and stuff right yeah. right yeah, and it definitely like you, there has to be a certain chemistry between the instructors and the the students and of course the classmates but that that was just a throwaway i think it was level be improv if I'm not mistaken maybe C I think it was C but yeah I mean I mean and then you went to the conservatory you said so I mean did how many shows did you do shows oh yeah we did we did shows um and gosh if I'm remembering correctly we did some shows leading up to before we graduated uh, but then when you graduate, you have, like, your graduation show. Right. And that was on the ETC stage, which was super exciting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, backstage, I remember being backstage and looking at, you know, the, like, the the ribs, I guess, of the, of the, uh, of the set. Mm -hmm. And Jack McBrayer had signed it, you know, oh, and it was cool. just, it was just super neat to step on the planks that uh, so many great people had had stepped on and the the show was great. You end up uh, once you finish conservatory, at least at that time, you get a nice uh, oversized T-shirt. Oh really? So yeah, a T-shirt, and then uh, it's like a little. Uh, it almost looks like a. It's a little pamphlet that you can open up. It almost it's fake leather, and it's actually sitting right there, which listeners won't be able to see it. But it <laughs> almost looks like something that you would you know, take down a food order. Yeah, that yeah. was kind of comical in its own way. <laughs> but it was it was a it was a priceless experience. I'll never forget it. Yeah, that's so cool to be there. Um I mean and then you do poetry now. I mean, is that something that you've always done, you've always loved to do, like to do? Oh yeah, for sure. So I started writing poetry probably when I was like as soon as I could write, you know. I I loved I've always loved words, you know, since I was little. The first word I remember learning how to spell was candy, um, which is interesting for someone who became type 1 diabetic. Um, but yeah, so I, I've always loved words. I read Charlotte's Web when I was like going into first grade or second grade, and uh, I used to make 
it started as me making like birthday cards for people when cool. I was really young. Um, so I would do greeting cards and I'd of course rhyme everything and it'd be super like cheesy. Yeah. Um, and then as I got older, maybe like 13 or 14, um, I had a dog. I wrote a poem about the dog was part wolf and poetry. It was crazy, a crazy dog. This dog was a half Malamute, part timber wolf. And I wrote, a, you know, a poem about wolves. Um, and then there was like a local competition I did. Um, and so poetry is just, it started to become a way as to, it started as a way to entertain people, mm-hmm. you know, and get like approval from my parents and family members. And then it became a way to express myself and deal with like the complex emotions of like growing up and, you know, being an adolescent, becoming a teenager. Um, I still have, gosh, probably dozens of notebooks from when I was younger that I've got to sort through and see if I can pull things from it. But it's it's yeah. been a constant in my life. How far back is like of the of the pieces you've saved? How far back does it go? Um, gosh, let's see, because. There was a short time where I, I actually did throw away some some really, like, I guess they would call it juvenilia yeah. in the poetry world. Uh, yeah. I did throw away some stuff that I had written in, like, the early 90s, but I still have some stuff in my head that I, that I can uh-huh. trace back to, like, 1996. Okay. 1997, wow. that's probably the oldest. So I was, like, 15 or 16. Wow, that is wild. It's crazy, yeah. Um. And is is your subject matter always the same? No, right? I mean, I've seen some of your stuff. It kind of, it's everywhere. Yeah, it definitely varies. So, you know, when I was younger, a lot of it was, like, boys and relationships, yeah. you know, um, and being frustrated with just growing up. Um, and then as I got older, I started to try to make a concerted effort to write things that were outside of myself. So... I would take photographs of, like, plants and things and then, you know, write about the plant or the flower that I saw. Oh, that's neat. Um, and then another thing I did, uh, which is similar to what one of the groups I work with called Poems While You Wait does, um, I started to go on the Internet and say, give me a word and I'll give you a poem. Right, and right. That, I remember that. Yeah, that originally started as a way to deal with stress. So I would be super stressed out and bored. And I think, okay, what do I, you know, what do I do with my brain right now? So I started asking people for poem suggestions, and that was great. So I didn't have to dig with my own psyche. And, you know, you get suggestions like, you know, love and hope. Some suggestions you'll see over and over again. But then sometimes you get stuff like, you know, cornbread or like some, a word I never heard. I think it was called grok. You know, um, so that's that was. Would actually, you bother looking up the word, what the meaning of crack was, or you just went with it? You know, I'm really glad you asked that because I almost feel like looking it up was kind of cheating because I think it should come. A, a lot of things, like which is what kind of improv taught me, um, which is not to be so. You know, as a writer, I'm so hinged on the outcome of something, but improv taught me to be in the moment, and it, it almost felt more, would feel more pure if I didn't look it up and I kind of went by the sound of it but I did look it up because I you know I'm a little bit of a perfectionist but yeah I've learned it has expanded my vocabulary a little bit to you know get some of these words and uh dive in because I want to make sure like I'll I'll spend maybe like five or ten minutes writing each one just off the cuff Mm -hmm. and I want to make sure that I can encapsulate my feeling on it and sometimes it totally misses the mark maybe as far as what somebody else would want it to be about but that's okay, you know, it's 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 whatever it resonates with me as. 
Right. I've always been more of a visual person in the sense that, like, I, I didn't read, really read growing up. Um, it was just, for me, it was like I would see an image or a photograph or something, and I would try to draw that. That was the way I expressed myself artistically, and it just got to the point where um, I was just like focusing on that like just trying to copy it copy whatever image or photograph as close as possible as i can to the real thing um my mom recently gave me um some of my some of my drawings from when i first started drawing i was like must have been like four or five years old and it was the peanuts like snoopy charlie brown and everyone and i my mom gave I have those in my possession, so that's why I was asking you, like, how far back um, did your, you know, your actual poems go that you've written down, you know, but, yeah, so, I mean, I mean, so, another part of this podcast is, so, I wanted to, it's, obviously, it's going to go on the, you know, the World Wide Web, and pretty much going to be in, like, existence forever um what what was what is something that you would want somebody say a hundred years from now to know about living in chicago and i guess a little bit about yourself i know it's kind of a open question but yeah that's that's actually a really great question um hmm i'll, I'll address the chicago part first mm -hmm. because when I came here, I had come from kind of a, I hadn't traveled very much. I still have never, like, like I've still never left the United States. And when I came here, I, I had not even, I was 29 and I had not flown yet. Um, so the thing about Chicago, I think that is super precious and memorable, probably won't be different in a hundred years, but I wish that the people a hundred years from now could meet the people from now because the thing that sustains, inspires, and blows my mind about this city is the people. You know, the melting pot of people mm -hmm. um, from different backgrounds, genders, you know, races, ages, um, passions, histories. It's That is priceless to me. I can walk out the door, you know, and go to Walgreens and, you know, see people and, you know, lock eyes with people who I don't know but have these amazing backstories that I, you know, things that I had never really encountered with the smaller lens that I had in Indiana. Um, so definitely I would, I think I would like to put people from a hundred years in the future in a, in a time capsule, you know, or in some type of time travel machine and have them come here, you know, and experience the people and what, what makes the city thrive. It's, it's vibrancy. Um, there was, there was a time when I was, um, walking down, I want to say like near North and Ashland with some friends of mine and we were looking at the city and it was lit up purple for whatever event. It was summertime and you could see the city like almost pulsing and that's kind of how I feel about the people here. It's there's there's an electricity and an energy that is palpable and it's that is the thing that defines the city. Obviously the architecture is great. Mm -hmm. Obviously the music is the green mill. I would say to people a hundred years from now go to the green mill if it's still open, which I'm assuming it will still be open. Probably. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's one thing that I hope never changes, but you know, all those things are courtesy of, of the great people that have, you know, called the city home. Um, 
as far as what I would want people to know about myself, and that's such a great question. Um, I would want people probably to be able to get inside my brain when things are super cheerful, you know, catch me on a day when, um, I'm wearing like my favorite dress and I've got, uh, you know, like an ice cream cone. I just consumed an ice cream cone or something. Um, and talk to me about the things that make me happy because I think there's something universal in it. Um, I guess maybe the lesson that I would try to, to give people hundred years from now and even now is to always, which is something I hope that I do well, is always be in touch with your inner child. Never lose that feeling of wanting to play and explore and discover everything. Like walk out the door, step on the sidewalk and look at the grass as though you've never seen it before. Always have that whimsy for sure. That's something I hope that like is infectious from me now and I hope in the future is something that if there's any way for that to be preserved, whether it's through the lessons I gave to my six-year-old niece or through, you know, someone listening to this, you know, 100 years from now or through poetry they find about a brownie that, you know, I ate and made me get sugar buzzed. I would love for, you know, people to laugh and smile at whatever they can. Right. It, and I think that's what a lot of adults forget, that um, no matter how much they grow up, they're... They always have, I think they all have, no matter how mean they are, no matter how adult, you know, doing the air quotes, they think they are, They everyone always has that inner child still there. And sometimes, I think most of the time, um, people know that, but they choose not to go there. I definitely agree. I think that we get to a point, you know, one thing as, as a writer and a performer that frustrates me is when I encounter people that say, I can't write, I can't dance, I can't sing. And I think that that, you know, we go through school and that we're irrepressible when we're young. And then there comes a point where we start to internalize, you know, bad grades or criticism or things that other people say. And then we start to smother and stifle ourselves. And that makes us unhappy. It starts to trigger the ego, you know, the egoic part of us that creates a false self and sense of self and buries that real part. And I think if we if we could have more goofiness, more just, you know, living, living off the cuff, being in the moment um, and, you know, tapping into that irrepressible joy, I think that 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 would make a lot of things you know flow more easily and a lot of people smile in general my brother once told me that i shot on one of my drawings and he's like i don't know if i can draw well and i'm like what do you mean he's like i've never tried i've never tried I, he, he's like I'll, i'm probably i probably know how to draw very well and i'm probably a pretty good artist but because i've never tried i don't know and i'm like well what are you waiting for? Do it. <laughs> so, like, most of the stuff that I do now, like, all my various hobbies, I, I tend to dive into those hobbies, like, head first, and I'll figure out everything later. Like, I mean, today, for example, like, in order to um, file a patent for something that I created, I needed to create a technical drawing. So, what did I do? I Googled how to create a technical drawing, you know, for this model. And sure enough, I 
I created one and then I went on to try to file the application and that was a mess but the, the my point is that I think people get put off right away just because they're because of the unknown and because of that unknown um, there's probably a billion or so people that have taken the step in one direction and then pulled back because of the, the fear of the unknown. And I think that's not only hurting like humanity, but I think the planet itself. Yeah, I, th I think so too. You know, it's, it's interesting uh, on that note that people are afraid of failure, but they're also sometimes afraid of success. You know, you've got like imposter syndrome. People that are starting to succeed think they're like, they don't deserve to be or have a spot and be like in the ring where they're at. Um, and some, there's a, a, a performer who I've worked with. I, I did a bat dance on his show, Steve Gatlin's Star Makers. And he has a, uh, I believe it's a TED talk about failing epically, like how great it is to fail epically because um, that unexplored. And I think, I think again, I don't know if it's cell phones or whatever, but I, I believe as, you know, as a, uh, collective the world is becoming very complacent you know everything's kind of delivered to the palm of our hands so why would we go out and try it but right. you know I, I actually recently went skydiving for the first time holy moly yeah. i would never do that really no see that's what i said too i was like <laughs> i'm afraid of heights um but the thing is when you're up that high and i think this is kind of a metaphor i look for metaphors and everything mm -hmm. when you're up that high you do not have the perspective to get the fear and what the instructor who, who I jumped with, and he had jumped 20,000 times. Jeez. We were ascending, and he had the window open, and I was like, uh, are you going to, like, close that? <laughs> you know, it's a really small plane. Mm -hmm. And he said, he, you know, he closed it, but he said, you know, no matter what is going on in your head right now, you might be feeling a lot of things, but I want you to know this is totally normal, and no matter what you think might happen, and no matter what might happen, you're going to do this. Although, like, I totally could have been like, take me down. I'm not jumping, you know, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. you're going to do this. But the thing he said was just enjoy it, you know. So you start to be in the moment. I've been reading a lot about mindfulness. You start to be in the moment and just realize that's the only guaranteed thing as much of a trip as it is. That's the only thing that we have. And it, it's such a liberating thing. And that's where that, you know, trying. I, I never would have had that realization and revelation which I've applied to my life if I hadn't decided okay yeah I am going to do this right it, it, it's it's like that thing of like if you think about it really there is no past there is no future we just have this moment you know like and it's like it's going it's moving it's moving it's moving and if you don't do something at that moment it's going to be gone um when I went, we went to um, Honduras in, um, um, was that a garbage truck? <laughs> it does sound like there's something. <laughs> anyway, so we went uh, scuba diving and when I first, you know, we did training in the pool, like, you know, by the hotel, by the resort and with all the gear on and then we go out onto the boat and so we're there it's like all right dive in i'm like okay so i dive in and i'm thinking like 
every all the training that they just gave us, you know, 15 minutes ago, um, is gonna help me do this. So I, we get in, and I start to go down, and my brain is telling me like, this is not right. Something's wrong here. Like, you need to go back up. So I actually went back up, and I'm like, crap. Like, what am I doing wrong? And I, I think the instructor might have said, give it another try. So I went down again, and sure enough, you know, we, we went down like 40, 50 feet, and it is a trip, man. Like, it was something that I never thought I'd do. And have you ever been scuba diving? I have not. It's a trip. Yeah. And especially, like, they give you, like, weights, so you can actually stay close to the bottom and we saw turtles and fish and it was really cool would, but, you, would you do it again yes oh awesome the one thing though it screwed up my ears like for at least a couple of weeks like like they felt like they wanted to pop but they just didn't pop and it took like maybe like two weeks before my ears my hearing was normal again oh see that's something i wouldn't have thought of but that makes sense that's that's great just like ascending in the air right yeah. i mean there's you're right there's so much pressure uh underwater that it just messes with your ears man but like i said after a couple of weeks it was fine um, how many feet below sea level were you we were anywhere between like 40 and 50 feet Oh, that's awesome, yeah. Yeah, and we were with a group of people, and um, so that was fun, too. And there was some people actually trying to certi- try to certify as, I don't know, I don't know what they were certifying, something related to scuba diving, like good scuba diving certification. Anyways, the point of that, maybe bringing that up is that my brain was telling me, you know, like, hey, you know, don't do this and you have to fight that urge you know and like throughout my life people I've had conversations with people where it was similar something similar was going down where like they had a you know they were in a position to do something and they just didn't go through with it and they might regret it they might not regret it you know it it can go I guess either way but I just feel like if more people now in the future, um, if if you have some, if you're listening podcast world, if there's something you've always wanted to do, um, especially now after we've been in a freaking pandemic for two years, I think it's time for you to go for it. Um, it you won't. I, I'm pretty sure you won't regret it. Um, I mean, do you have anything to say for, about that? Yeah, yeah, I do, Um, because one thing, and this is such a simple, like, kind of aphorism that people say is that, you know, if you don't try, you have a 0% chance, you know, and if you do try, um, you you have a chance of enjoying yourself. I I was hiking, I recently started hiking quite a lot, um, and I was hiking previously, I'd say about 10 or 11 years ago, in the San Gabriel Mountains, and I was trying to you do a relatively easy hike, maybe like a 1,200 feet in elevation to Switzer Falls, and it was maybe like a two-foot-wide trail with a sheer drop-off, and I chickened out. I couldn't do it. I I fell to my knees. I was crying, Um, and then I had to walk back, you know? Like, (laughs) it was was really rough, and ever since then, I've taught, I regret that. I regret that. I regret, I wish that I hadn't done that, and since then, I've, like, 
hiked in um, I hiked in Bryce Canyon, which was great. It was, it was icy, you know, and there were switchbacks, and I did have to scoop down on my bottom for a lot of it. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it was it was you know that that same thing is it's it's super maybe cliche, but like that carpet him sees the day is you know that will that'll stick with me always. Um, yeah, that's definitely one 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 way that resonates with me. I remember one time when we were in Mexico, there was this, like, man-made dam, and there was this wall, like, leading to where the water comes down, but the the walkway, the top of the wall, was probably about a foot wide, and all my cousins were going, everybody was going to the water, so I'm like, all right, so I guess, you know, I'll go too. So I'm walking over there, and... The second I look over the side, I was probably like 25 feet up, my knees buckled and I w- went down to like my hands. Like it was completely involuntary. I didn't, I was like, what the hell's going on here? Mm-hmm. Like I was disoriented, I was like crap. And sure enough, I crawled back <laughs> because it was it was so narrow, like only a foot wide. I had to crawl back backwards. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I can, that's hilarious. I can envision this. How old were you? I was probably like six, seven years oh, old. Oh, wow, yeah. That's something that, like, that feeling, and that's one thing that I say often to myself, is the, the thing that gets me is not so much that I feel something, you know, terribly disastrous could happen if I'm super high up and close to an adage. It's not that, that that's a realistic fear. It's that the fear is what makes me scared. You know, it goes back to the old thing, the only thing you have to fear is fear itself. Right. But the fear is what makes me wobbly and makes me, you know, which I guess is natural. I'm sure there's some survival reason for it, but... Right. Yeah. Right, right. Like, you're, like, like what do they call it? Uh, like, DNA instinct. I forget the word they use for it, but it's, yeah, it's like your body saying, like, hey, like, I mean, as an example with the scuba diving, my brain was telling me, like, hey, you know, you're not supposed to be going this deep into the water and and I get, and there's there's a certain um that fear that that bubbles up for me there's a certain like um there's a certain like appeal to that because obviously you know that, that fear is there but it's it's almost like you want to take it on you know and that's what I like about the fear that it gives you an opportunity to take it on. Absolutely. I, I, I agree with that like a thousand percent because that's where the fun comes in. Because if you start to bulk from that, then, you know, and that, that goes for anything in life that you're afraid of. They often say lean into the discomfort. And that discomfort, that like feeling of this doesn't feel normal, what's going to happen, um, is kind of where the fun lies, you know. So this is this is gonna sound like an unrelated crazy example, but like I love that awkward moment, that feeling of of discomfort. I think discomfort is not an unnecessary part of our lives. In fact, I think it's a space in which we can learn so much. So you mm-hmm. remember I used to make face cakes. So I used to, if it was someone's birthday, I would bake a cake and make it the shape and you know size and color and features of their face (laughs) and presenting it to them was the most awkward thing in the world because it looks super cartoonish it was not photo quality Mm -hmm. but operating in that space where you know people are like cutting into their own face and like eating their own (laughs) eye and like having forced to look at a cartoonish version of themselves and photograph themselves next to it is 
a super great moment of self-reflection and a, a, a very fun little spot to occupy and kind of like revel in is that that feeling of okay this is weird but you know what we're going with it you know that, right. that whole thing about life you know because again going back to that kid thing when when we're kids we don't we do crazy stuff you know we do the craziest things we'll just like you know like I don't even want to say some of the, the like really like silly kid things that I would do you know it was just like just whatever to have fun even just jumping in puddles because it's so unedited and you don't think that hard about the consequences. And of course, when you're adult, you do have to weigh consequences. Right. But if you don't let the consequences weigh you down, then that's a really great uh, spot to operate in. I, I, I don't know why, but my, I had a friend that would, we would like to hang on to the back of ice cream trucks. Oh my gosh. Like, there's that metal grate that, like, whatever, like, power source is powering the the coolers and stuff yeah it's like blowing hot air but my friend would do it all the time and one day he's like come on let's go so there i go like hanging out my feet on the bumper and hanging out to that metal grate and i'm i look back on that now and i'm thinking like what the hell was i doing but it was because i wasn't thinking about the consequences i wasn't thinking about that if it, the, it were to speed up i would fall off and crack my head open Right. But, you know, and I think about it and there's a lot of stuff. I'm not doing anything that crazy nowadays, but there's a lot of stuff now where I'm like, you know, I'll I'll give that a try. I mean, let's see. Let's see how well I do with it. And and, I mean, we have the Internet now, so instruction has become super easy for almost anything. You just type in a phrase and there's a thousand plus videos of whatever you're trying to learn. So I, I see that's another thing about the internet the internet it has you know it's like basically the wild wild west um but i think it's a good thing in the sense that i can find information about anything in a second's you know notice you know and i think that's why i like the internet like when the pandemic hit i was like this is what the internet was created for for everybody to communicate you know online um and it's it's like doing it's doing its job what it was supposed to do. Um, I just and I know it's like a whole. I don't want to get into the whole free speech and politics crap, but there's a that that can be a benefit too because then you know somebody who's spreading lies and crap can see the perspective you know of like the opposite end of what one person is saying. And I, I, even though it's like a lot of like, like it's a wild wild west, but I think, and I've had discussions discussions with people um, about whether or not the internet is a good thing, and I, I think for the most part it is. Yeah, you know, it's an endless fountain of information, and that's really awesome. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely. when you said that about the pandemic kind of the pandemic kind of gave me both the benefits and all of going into the internet and then the benefits of going outside the internet when it first started you know I remember it almost seemed like especially because we were on lockdown here in Chicago it seemed like people did kind of go back to the basics when they were communicating people really valued things more and the internet gave them a way to communicate you know zoom rooms i went to a a 1980s zoom dance party and i remember people 
you know, all glammed out for the 80s. These are grown adults, like, dancing around with a flashlight in their bedroom. And would I have ever seen that if it weren't for the internet? No. Would it ever have happened if it weren't for the pandemic? No. So it helped us reconnect with that. Um, But then I also went the opposite way and started writing letters to people on the typewriter, you know, which was its own different brand. So, you know, it it was an interesting way to balance. I think it changed our relationship with ourselves, with each other, with the internet, with so many things, definitely. Right, and because my brothers and I have been on the on the internet since the '80s, before it was even called the World Wide Web, and back then it was basically just somebody that set up a server with a bunch of files on it, and somehow, some way, you would get the phone number for that server, and you could get you know files, different like games and stuff like that from those servers. So. Like when, like in early '90s, when like Netscape and all these like search engines, AOL started to pop up, I was like, like this is what I've been waiting for this whole time. I wanted to see like actual like images instead of like a monochrome screen, you know. And like now that you basically can do live streams and all that, it's, it's I think it's way cool. Um, I mean, there's like, I mean, it, it, it's crazy because all this revolves around um, computers. And as a matter of fact, when I load this podcast onto, you know, the podcast, you know, place I'm going to load it up to, I'm going to use a computer, you know. But I know um, having like an analog typewriter uh, must be. You know, something you enjoy a lot, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've seen your collection or part of your collection. <laughs> it keeps expanding. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know how many I have right now. That's <laughs> terrifying. I think it's 14, but I have one coming in the mail, and I have another one that's, like, on deck for me somewhere. Um, yeah. I started to amass them uh, after someone, um, my friend Colty, who I had worked with, on the poetry brothel bought me a typewriter which I had been really jonesing to work with poems while you wait and then now we've branched out and then there's we've got another collective called the typewriter tarts uh it started with one and I recently read a book that said if you have one typewriter uh or if you you start with a couple typewriters I guess you need two um they will breed and multiply uh (laughs) like rabbits yeah for sure oh it's bad and you know (laughs) a little more expensive than rabbits and I guess and heavier much heavier I guess to the point where I had um eight and I realized I hadn't named any of them so then they all became Bella Lugosi one through eight you know with Roman numerals of course so they're all Bella Lugosi's and I I actually have my favorite typewriter is a batwing typewriter um it the the type bars are set up above the platen, which is the thing on which you roll the paper, mm-hmm. and they will come from the side and kind of they're they're almost they've ever been described as oct- octagonal shapes, mm-hmm. so they're not just bars, and they'll come down and smack on the paper from the sides, but when it's just resting there, it looks like the wings of a bat. Oh, cool! It's really unique, yeah. <laughs> um, when whenever I would get a new laptop. Um, I would name them after the Marx Brothers. Oh, that's awesome. So it would be like Carpo, Groucho, Gummo, like, you know, all down the line. Yes, like, that's great. There's like six brothers, I think. Have you run out of I Marx have, Brothers I have yet? not. I have that's not. a good sign, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something like, I mean, you know they have um, um, like analog keyboards 
that you can plug in through USB to your computer, right? Yeah, I've seen that. I haven't tried it, but I'm so tempted to try it because there's something super cathartic about hitting a key and getting resistance, you know, but I don't know how that would feel without seeing a letter imprint on paper, right, you know, right. getting that, like, immediate gratification. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, let's see, what else have we talked about? Um, you got any favorite restaurants? Oh, yeah, well, I'm so glad you asked him. Every time uh, every time me and my boyfriend walk down the street or go to a new part of Chicago, I'm like, they've got great food, they've got great food. He's like, you really like Chicago's food, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, I do. Um, my favorite restaurants gosh there are so many because again like the people um are wonderful at Mm -hmm. the restaurants so i guess it depends on my specific you know mood or need at that time Mm -hmm. Uh, i really like say if i'm up and i want some fast grub hub i love gary in the waz um what style is that that's indian food on a divan um house of nepal is where i had one of the best meals i've ever had um, that was that was really delicious. Um, I, I'm vegetarian, yeah. So as far as vegan food goes, you can't miss. I think it's it, it's been called Soul Vegan or Soul Vegetarian. It's out south. That place is unbelievable. It's it's been there for like I want to say since definitely since the 80s. Okay. That place is good. Um, and then locally here in Andersonville, I love Reza's. Yeah, I, I could honestly go on because yeah. that is one of my favorite things about Chicago is the food. Uh, Turquoise is also really great. Uh, it's a Mediterranean joint in Roscoe Village that I okay. recently tried out and it's really good. Um, and because I love food so much, I have, I'm compelled to say Barbayani in Lincoln Square because it feels like you're going to like a grandmother's house. They give you so much food. The portions are huge and it just nice. tastes home cooked. It's really great. Yeah. There was this, um, I don't know if it exists anywhere. I haven't been up there, but like somewhere like Southwest on Milwaukee, there was this Polish restaurant that, um, you know, they had all the like traditional Polish food. But if you like take a peek in the kitchen, there was this like short little Polish grandma making all the food. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, and everything was delicious there. And I, I got you know, now, now that I think about it, I gotta see if it's still, this was like, geez, like twenty five years ago the last time I was there. So who knows if it's still there? But yeah, I, that's one thing that I, I ask only because like. Again, you know, a few years down the line, when people are listening to this, people are going to hear those restaurant names and be like, hey, is the best place still exist? You know, let's go try it out. And they are not giving me any money for, you know, advertising them. Uh, it's just, I just want those restaurants to be in the history of all this, like, podcast business. Yeah, for sure. And unfortunately, they're all they're all kind of dropping like flies, you know, like, especially since the, the pandemic happened. That's been really tough. Um, but yeah, that's whenever I travel to a new place, that's the main thing I ask is a local. I'll say, what's your favorite place to eat? You know, instead of looking it up on the internet and you find those roundups where it's, it's kind of not, it might be skewed. You need to talk to somebody who lives in that neighborhood and loves the food. Right, right. Exactly. Like, um, I remember I went to a restaurant, Mexican restaurant one time and they only had ground beef, um, like tacos. And I was like, no, like I want steak. And they're like, no, we only have ground beef. I was like, all right. So, as 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 much as that, there's a lot of good restaurants. There's also a good share of bad restaurants. I can, can yeah, I won't mention names, but I can right, definitely confirm right. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, it sucks too because of the pandemic. A lot of people got those business loans. Um, 
and a lot of the restaurants that have closed have used those loans to basically close up shop, pay off their debts and close up shop. And I mean, it's good for the, I guess, people who decide they want to keep on going. Um, but I mean, there's some people that just bowed out, man. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I guess we're going to hit that mark around now. Um, you got any um, websites, um, anything online, your socials that you want people to know about? Yeah, for sure. I'm not super active on like social media as much as I used to be, but uh, you know, I, I recommend following the typewriter charts and Poems While You Wait. Poems While You Wait has, I believe, a Tumblr and an Instagram. Typewriter charts has an Instagram. Um, I believe they both have websites. Um, you can find some of my work on there. Um, I've also done recently done voiceover work and writing for an app called Gfulness that I would love to plug because they are, it's a mindfulness based app that uses comedy to integrate mindfulness. So you're not just kind of listening to this droning voice, you're laughing in between and laughter is pretty, uh, vital to relaxation. So those are great. And then, uh, you know, if, yeah, if you, if you check out my, uh, Facebook, Lisa Marie Farver, uh, you might be able to find some, or hashtag poems I wrote on Facebook. Yeah. You might be able to find some poems I wrote on Facebook. Cool. Well, thank you. We finally got this interview in after, who knows, was this last year they were trying to squeeze it in. But thanks a lot, Lisa. Appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Awesome. Thanks. So there it is, Lisa Marie Farr, pretty interesting person, huh? Um, hope you enjoyed the interview, um, and especially after back being after being back after so many months of not recording a podcast. I really appreciate you listening all the way to the end, and hopefully I'll have another podcast very very soon. Thanks for listening, and remember remember to subscribe, like on all the podcast platforms. Thank you very much. Bye.